My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, uh, good morning. I hope everybody's ready for Thanksgiving week. Whether you are or not, it's coming. Uh, the year was uh, 1783, June 4th. Village just outside Paris, a large group of people, a large crowd had gathered to watch as this huge taffeta balloon, about 33 feet in diameter, was expanded by hot air began to rise, was then set free of its moorings when it rose 600 feet in the air, the first public launch of a balloon, the first step in human flight. The crowd applauded thunderously, just excited about it. So, you know, as they watched it drift into the distance, farmers, unsuspecting farmers, in the distance noted the UFO and were not quite so thrilled. <laughs> not sure quite what this thing in the sky was that was landing on their property. It landed, but not before they were able to arm themselves with pitchforks, with which they immediately attacked it and tore it to pieces, reminding us that sometimes even the best of changes can appear to be hostile and dangerous and threatening at first. It is hard to change. But that's what we're talking about this morning in the series on tests that we all experience. If somebody's new to Christ and you're trying to help them know, what do I expect? You can expect three tests. Tests of, of troubles, tests of temptation, tests of transformation, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. All three we found in the first chapter of James. The good news is that God wants to change us. He wants to give us a new life. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, God says, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't that great? God wants to change you. Not just your behavior, but your heart. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if the, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... 
He's a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Isn't that good news? Now, some of you are like really nice people. By nature, you're really good people. And so that's maybe not as joyful for you. But for the rest of us who struggle with being nice, who regret our past, we're like, oh, the idea that God would make us new, give us new hope and new kindness and new joy and, and new forgiveness and new starts and new relationships, new faithfulness, new truthfulness. Wow, what a promise. But we get frustrated because sometimes we feel stuck, don't we? You know what a rut is? Somebody defined a rut as a grave with both ends knocked out. Sometimes we get into ruts and we wonder, can I really change? Think about one area of your life that you've not been able to change. Psychiatrist Robert Coles was speaking to a graduate class at Harvard University, and he referred to a conversation that he had recently had with a highly regarded psychiatrist who confided, I've been doing therapy with a man for 15 years. He is as angry and self-centered and mean as he was the first day he entered my office. But, he said, the only thing that has changed is now he knows why he's angry and mean, but it hasn't changed a thing. Coles looked at the students and said, could we conclude that this man needed, what he needed was more than information, but transformation? But is transformation possible for human beings? That's the scary question. Reminds me of that old joke, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. Can we change? Yeah, but we really have to want to change. Remember Newton's first law of motion? Everything continues in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. Now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we know the forces that change us are the love of God and the truth of God, the Spirit of God. And in James, the first chapter, beginning of verse 19, James gives us some wisdom on how the love of God and the power of God can change us if we will let Him. Verse 19, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. What I want to share with you this morning are three keys to change that James shows us and a couple of enemies of change that we need to address as well. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that the word that we are reading is your word. We thank you that you are present in this place. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, that you've not abandoned us, but your power really is at work if we will let you do your work. God, help each of us to hear what you want us to hear and by your grace to take next steps with you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. First step to transformation is to be quick to listen to God's truth and slow to be angry. God changes us. First, we have to listen to Him when He gives us the truth and not just react defensively or in anger. Now, we understand that anger, where anger comes from. There's a, there is a little 
pitchfork-armed farmer inside each one of us when it comes to change. Years ago, I had a professional coach who talked to me about the four stages of change. You're probably aware of these. First step is unconscious incompetence, and then there's conscious incompetence, and then there is conscious competence. You're aware of it, and so you're working on it, and then there is unconscious competence. Then you're doing the right thing. You're just not have to think about it anymore. You've really changed. Now, if you unpack that, it's easy to see where the anger comes in. Unconscious incompetence, ignorance is bliss. You ever walk around with your zipper down? Doesn't bother you, does it? I mean, all day long, your zipper could be down until you find out, until you become conscious, your zipper's down. Then all of a sudden, you're embarrassed kind of thing. That's why I don't like listening to my preaching. It's just like I would rather not know what a bad preacher I am. I'm just not going to listen to it. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. But what happens when someone makes us conscious of our incompetence or somehow the, the reaction can be anger, defensiveness. I don't want to listen. My dad is a good golfer, better golfer than I am, knows golf better than I do. I'm a hacker. Anybody who's ever golfed with me knows I'm not a good golfer. I am quite proficient at putting golf balls in trees. And, um, and so my dad is not only a good golfer, at the heart he's a coach. And so I'll get out there on the golf course with dad and we'll be I've hacked enough, and by about the fourth or fifth tee box, he's like, Brett, I could help you with that slice. You know, your feet are pushing her right in that, area, in that direction kind of thing. And, 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 and there's a part of me that really wants to be teachable and to listen. But to be honest with you, there's a bigger part of me that's kind of like, Dad, just let me put the ball in the woods. I really don't, I'm really not here for a lesson. I just want to play golf without working on it kind of thing, you know. But anybody knows who's watched me play golf, the, 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 the anger of Brett does not achieve God's righteousness on the golf course. And so it is for you and me as well. For, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, a fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. Fools get angry because they don't want to be coached. They don't want correction. They don't want to hear that their way is not right. And when God exposes their unconscious unrighteousness, they don't listen. Moses serves as a positive example for us, though, in this. Um, Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He's done the whole plagues thing, God's miracles through him, and they've led, gone through the, the Red Sea. And, um, and now he's leading like four or th th two or three million people in the wilderness. But the people are kind of frustrated because Moses is the only one who's adjudicating uh, conflicts, and, and everybody can't get to him, and he's worn out. At this point, his father-in-law, Jethro, comes into his business and says, asks two questions. Moses, what are you doing, and why are you doing it this way? Pretty good questions. Now put yourself in Moses' shoes. 
You've been appointed by God. God's done great miracles. You've led the people through the Red Sea miraculously. You've been leading two, three, you have two or three million employees that you've been leading. And your father-in-law shows up at work one day. What are you tempted to say? You know, Jethro, when was the last time you led two million people? You know, did God put you in this position? You have a funny name. I remember when you were on Beverly Hillbillies kind of thing, Jethro, kind of the the sort of thing. It's just like, you know, it would be so easy for Moses to not just get angry. Who are you to talk to me like that? But Moses listens. He takes Jethro's advice. He delegates responsibility. He appoints qualified men to do the judging. And then he says, you all take the easiest cases, I'll take the hardest cases. And the Bible says that that everybody was pleased and the work got easier for Moses because he wasn't defensive, he didn't get angry, he listened even though it meant listening to his (laughs) father-in-law. And God made a change. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Where is that point in your life where you get angry when God speaks? You're bitter towards somebody and God says, Jesus, uh, love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. No, I don't want to love that person. They voted differently from me kind of thing, you know. Or what about in suffering? There are a lot of people that lose their faith because they suffer. Now, suffering is the megaphone of God is is what C.S. Lewis said. When you suffer, do you get angry at God? God, if you really loved me, you'd answer my prayer. God, if you really loved me, I wouldn't have this cancer. God, if you really loved me, my loved one wouldn't have died. Or do you get teachable? Do you listen to what God wants to say to you in pain? What about with finances? Jesus put me first. Old Testament standard was 10%, first 10%. Do you get joyful? Do you listen to God when he says that? 2% of Christians tithe, 2%. That tells me there's a large percentage that gets angry at God. Not quick to listen, quick to be angry. Now, if I can get really pesky, what about with politics? When God speaks about political issues, do you say, God, stay out of my politics? God, you don't have anything to do with politics. Have you read the Old Testament recently to see what God says to Egypt and Edom and Assyria and Babylon, not just Israel. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me except in your political opinions. Does it make you angry when God speaks about what you believe politically? Or do you listen to Him? Let's be honest. Some of you are more committed to your political beliefs than you are to listening to God. We can all be vulnerable for that. It's a God for many people. Be quick to listen, he says. Next, he says, we need to then humbly receive, verse 21. Therefore, ridding yourself of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Underline those two words, humbly receive. Transformation demands new thinking. How we think determines how we act. 
take a look at this concentric circles. I've shared with you these before, that what we do behaviorally is not just, doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's determined by attitudes, like what's most important in our lives? What do we value? Those things are determined by beliefs. What is right? What is wrong? How do you determine love and not love? Those things are determined by worldview. Is it a biblical worldview or is it a secular worldview? Is it what the Bible says or is it what the Bible says and what current culture says? See, what we do isn't just about what we it's not just about our action. It's about all of those things. That's why the Bible says in, 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 in uh, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your whole self is God's. Holy and pleasing to God, which is your true worship. Your true worship is not just what happens here on Sunday morning. It is what do you do with your whole self, your identity, your body? Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, so you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Does that make you angry? The first enemy of change is anger because you don't listen to what God says. And it keeps you from receiving His Word. Change begins when we receive God's Word and we apply His truth to every area of our life where we need to change. You have anxiety issues, apply God's, receive God's word about anxiety. There's a lot the Bible says about anxiety. For instance, in Philippians, it says, whoever's anxious, let him pray and be thankful. You got a problem with your marriage, apply what the Bible says, receive what the Bible says about marriage, and apply that to your marriage. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, die for your wife. Wives, respect your husbands. You receive that? You want to change your finances? Receive God's word about finances. What does God say about finances and putting him first in your finances? You want to change your sex life? You want to feel better about yourself? Don't listen to what the world says about you. Listen to what the Bible says about you. Made in God's image. Loved by God. Saved by Christ. Valued in him. You want to change any area of your life in your anger, with your career, with your hurts, with your time, habits, anything. Receive what God's Word says in that area and apply it to your life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 says, then we will no longer be little children. See, that's the goal. Grow up. Don't be a little child. Tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Stop right there just for a second. God says one sign of spiritual immaturity is you can be persuaded by clever people with deceitful arguments. God says, I don't want you to be a baby believer. I want you to grow up. Baby believers hear people sell sin and they buy it. You know, people can be really clever to say that good is evil and evil is good, that love is not love, and what is hate is actually loving. 
and they believe. Baby believers believed what the Bible says about morality 15 years ago, but they've changed what they believe today, not because the Bible's changed, but because of clever people who have been able to sell them on a lie. And God says, I want you to grow up, receive my word. The Bible says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Receive Humbly receive the word. Why is it such a big deal that we know the truth? Because the truth, he says, saves, is able to save your souls. Lies destroy us. They take the life out of us. Part of the reason we can't change is we believe a lie about something. And we have to apply the truth of God to that. We believe, maybe it's a lie about God. Maybe it's a lie about Morality. Maybe it's a lie about you. Maybe it's a lie about your past. Maybe it's a lie about joy or purpose. Maybe it's a lie that says, if I do this thing, I'll feel better about myself. And it's a lie. Uh, you'll feel better initially, but long term, you'll be enchained. Every time I believe a lie, and the world's filled with lies, I I, I, I walk myself into harmful, unloving behavior. So Paul says in Romans 12, if you want to change, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you'll be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and, and perfect ac action, will of God. Now James gets real clear on the heart of the problem with this one. The enemy of change at this point is pride. Humbly receive the implanted Word. I was reading this morning James 4 14 or James 3 14 says, Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Why don't we believe the truth? Why don't we receive the truth? Because in arrogance we say, I'm smarter. I don't need to listen because I'm smarter than God on this one. And not to scare us, right? Because the more proud people are, the less they see it. Remember that old song? Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way, you know, which is kind of self-contradictory. If you're perfect in every way, you don't think you're humble, right? It's kind of, but it's, we are the last ones to see our own pride, right? We see it in other people, tend not to see it in ourselves. And the result is it kills. It kills our hunger for God. It kills our teachability for God's Word, John Bunyan, who wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress, it is said that on the inside cover of his Bible, he wrote these words, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Either this book will keep you from pride or pride will keep you from humbling yourself and receiving this book. Last night I was listening to a wise woman and she asked, what's the appropriate posture for reading God's Word, the appropriate posture, she said, is on your knees. Do you receive God's Word in humility or do you receive God's Word with an arrogant spirit? This is why we need humility if we're going to, this is why we need accountability if we're going to change. Because we don't see our own pride, but people who know us well do. 
you don't see my pride. Well, maybe you do. Okay, it's probably so obvious. But I'll tell you who does see my pride, my wife. You can't be married 33 years without your spouse seeing your pride better than you do. So do you listen to your spouse? Do you have an accountability person? Are you in a small group? Change comes when we're doers of the word. When we are quick to listen, not to be angry, humble to receive, not proud, and then ready to take action. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Back to the concentric circles. How do we change? We have this behavior thing, and then there's attitude, beliefs, and worldview. Here's the question. Do you change from the outside in or the inside out? And the answer, of course, is you, all the same. You're doing it all the same time. You know, because here's the deal. Here's what's really tricky. Um, sometimes our, what happens when our worldview and beliefs or attitudes contradict our behavior? What's easier to change, your beliefs or your behavior? Why is it that morality has changed, has shifted so much in the United States? It's not because all of a sudden we become more moral people and our beliefs are somehow superior to the past. It's because people don't want to change their behavior and it's easier to change your beliefs than your behavior. It's also because people have this idea that for me to be genuine, for me to be authentic, and the worst thing is for me not to be authentic, I need to go along with my feelings. I have to listen to my inner voice. Your inner voice will tell you what is right. Try that when you're wanting to lose weight, you know? My inner voice is telling me all the time, eat the chocolate, right? If I listen, if, my, if me being my authentic self is listening to my inner voice, then at Thanksgiving, I'm going to have like 10 pieces of pie and not even eat any turkey, right? You listen to your inner voice, you know it's destruction. By the way, this is a horrible, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking this is a horrible sermon for the week before Thanksgiving. (laughs) Forgive me. Well, let's apply it next week. But no, we know what happens, there is a, it's called cognitive dissonance. When our behavior and our beliefs contradict, something has to change. You can't live in that disharmony forever. And since it's easier to change your beliefs than your behavior, as Christians we know, we, here, here's the deal about hypocrisy. Here's the deal about inauthenticity. Hypocrisy is not acting contrary to how you feel. Hypocrisy is acting contrary to what you believe, what you know to be true. Authenticity is not going along with your emotions because you want to behave this way. Authenticity is having the character to do the right thing. This is why we admire Jesus for dying on the cross. He didn't follow his inner authentic self of not wanting to go to the cross. He did what was right, and God has blessed you as a result. And so we change. That's why in Celebrate Recovery in 12 Steps, they talk about fake it till you make it. It's not really fake it till you make it. It's be true to what you believe until your feelings follow. Think about marriage. I mean, 12 Steps, the, the, the Hurts, Habits, Hangups, addictive people, you know what this means. But think about how it works in marriage. You know, Righteous Brothers, song became popular again because of... Um, Top Gun, you know, you lost that, you've lost that love and feeling. 
Sing it with me. Whoa, whoa, that loving feeling. Um, so what do you do when you've lost that loving feeling? Psychologists tell us that we are physically not incapable, we are not capable of sustaining romantic feelings for more than two years. If you're married long enough, sorry, eventually you're going to lose the love and feeling. But the principle of 12 steps, fake it till you make it, is if you act the way you want to feel, eventually you'll feel the way you act. Act the way you want to feel and eventually your feelings will follow. We are not slaves of our emotions. We're not slaves of our gut. We follow Christ in love and obedience. So, in your marriage, you've lost love and feeling. You know what? If all you do when you look at your husband or, or wife, all you do is think negative thoughts. All you do is criticize all you do is think about the things that you find unattractive and irritating and how they're different and how you'd like them to change. Guess what? You're going to lose the love and feeling. Whoa, whoa. But if you look at the romance is found in the pursuit, right? If you pursue romantically, if you are thankful for the things to be thankful for, if you do romantic things, then the romantic feelings will follow. That's why C.S. Lewis, when he wrote um, a, a sermon for a newlywed couple, he had a, one of my favorite lines. I use it in most of my, in, in most of my weddings. He says, he says um, love will not sustain your marriage, but now marriage will sustain your love. Isn't that good? Your romantic emotions will not sustain a marriage, but your commitment to marriage, your commitment to each other, your commitment to love, your commitment to serve, your commitment to be thankful to God, that will sustain your love. The feelings will come back if you act the way you want to feel. Next, we need to clean house. James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. Because if anybody is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like somebody looking at his face in the mirror and he looks at himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Can you imagine doing that? Isn't that ridiculous? Now, some of you have looked in the mirror and it's been friendly to you much of your life. Some of us have never had that experience and especially as we get older. You know, it really is not fair how hair stops showing up where it's supposed to and it starts showing up where it's not supposed to. And so imagine this old guy looks in the mirror and he sees hair coming out of his nose, the size that are big enough. I mean, he is putting, stringing, you know, Christmas tree lights on it. And, and he looks at it and he says, I am so, would you sit there every Sunday morning, every service? Larice is, God has got a special crown for her. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> thanks. Anyway, the, um, <laughs> tell your dad I said hi. Um, the, um, no, and you walk away, you say, that's ridiculous. That's, that's silly. But isn't that what we do? James says, that's what it's like when we read the scriptures and we know the right thing to do, and then we just walk away and we don't do anything about it. Here's the question. What is God saying to you right now is your next step, your next action step of obedience? Some of you know you need to be baptized. You have come, God has told you, and you know it over and over and over again, and yet every Sunday morning you walk out of this place saying, I'm not going to be baptized. You're looking in the mirror that tells you to take a next step and you don't do it. 
Don't listen to this. The one, verse 25, the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. I love that phrase, the perfect law of freedom. God's obedience to God gives you the freest life possible. Let me say that again, because our world has cleverly deceived many people to believe that if you follow God's way, it's going to be tyranny. If we really apply God's truth to our world, it's going to take away our freedoms. It's a lie. Here's the truth. God's perfect law, it's the law of love, brings freedom. You would be and we would be more free than ever before. And it's not a forgetful here, but a doer who works, that person will be blessed in what he does. Clean house. Verse 21, he said, ridding yourself of all moral filth. There are about, I looked it up this week, there are about 50 times in the New Testament where God says, get rid of. Clean house. What do you need to clean? You want to change. Experts in change say it usually, you probably won't change if you try to do everything at once. So what's your next step in one area? What's it mean for you to clean house so you can have a healthy body? You know, that means maybe going back home and getting rid of some, again, horrible application for Thanksgiving. (laughs) Next Sunday, okay, clean house. What's it mean to go and clean house so you can have a healthy mind? Anything going into the mind, into the ears that are making your mind unhealthy? What about healthy emotions? It begins with confession. Augustine said, confession of bad works is the beginning of good works. That's what we do at communion time. Confess those unhealthy emotions. God, I'm carrying around anxiety and anger and jealousy and fear. And James says God will bring about some changes that we can look for. Verse 26. First, we can look for a change in words. If anybody thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. James 3 verse 2 says the same kind of thing. We all stumble in many ways, but if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he is mature, able to control his whole body. One of the leading indicators that something is not right inside of me is that my tongue loses control. Anger, bitterness, boasting, exaggerations, untruths. What action do you need to take so God can change your words? Maybe talk less. Where words are many, sin is not absent. Maybe, maybe speak more slowly. Be slow to anger. Second area of life that will change is your service. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. This is not a religious checkbook, check uh, list, by the way. You know, don't say, oh, I've cared for orphans and widows. I must be a religious person. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is that the most desperate people in ancient times were orphans and widows. The people who could not repay you were orphans and widows. So this is the real test. How are you serving and not getting repaid? Where are you serving in secret where nobody can appreciate you? where nobody thanks you, where there is no reward here on earth, the only reward is going to be in eternity. Pure religion is serving for the sake of serving God and not getting a reward. That's pure religion. It's going to change your service. 
and he's going to change your walk. Verse 27, look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. We're not stained by the world's entertainment. We're not stained by the world's rationalization of sins. We're not stained by the world's lifestyle. What's it look like for you to take a next step in integrity? Pure and undefiled religion before God is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So what's your next step? Where will you go now? Soren Kierkegaard was a famous theologian, um, existentialist, but he had a great story that he told, a parable of the duck church. As this parable goes, one Sunday morning, the community of ducks gathered in their church as they always had. They waddled into the building and they waddled down the aisle and they waddled into their pews where they perched themselves. At this point, the duck preacher waddled in, no doubt wearing duck boots. I'm sorry. I just like that one. That's for me, not for you. Takes his stance behind the duck pulpit, opens his duck Bible, and begins to preach. Ducks, God has given you wings, he says, and with these wings, you can fly like eagles. With these wings, there's nowhere where you cannot go. No work for God you cannot accomplish. No pen can contain you. No fence can confine you. With these wings, you can soar on new heights. My fellow ducks, let us mount up on wings and fly. We can fly. Go now, fly. And the congregation of ducks stood and again thunderously applauded and everybody agreed. All the ducks afterwards said, that was the most powerful sermon Pastor Duck had ever preached. Kierkegaard noted. Then they all left the building, waddling all the way home. <laughs> Is real change possible? Yeah. But you have to really want to. What's the next step? You don't have to change everything overnight, you don't have to take a hundred steps. But there is a next step you need to take right now. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. You'll be blessed in what you do. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that you have spoken to us who are listening for you. Um, God, I want to confess that sometimes I'm not listening and I don't even know I'm not listening. God, I thank you for your grace that you're so patient with us. I thank you that it is by your grace that we are saved, that you look at us right now and love us in Christ. And it's by your grace and power that you transform us. Lord, would you speak right now to discouraged spirits? Would you give hope to frustrated people who've sometimes lost hope that they could change, that their lives really could be new, that they really could find meaning. And would you just take us your next step through Christ, I pray. Amen.